This episode is sponsored by Kendo UI. Kendo UI allows you to build better apps faster. They have a comprehensive library ranging from data grids and charts to buttons and sliders. Plus, you can use their components as plain JavaScript as well as in Angular, React, and Vue. They have a large collection of customizable popular themes like Bootstrap and Material. Go check them out at javascriptjabber.com slash kendoui. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Views on View. My name is Chris Fritz, member of the View Core team. And today in our panel, we have Divya Sasidaran. Hello. We have Eric Hanchett. Hello, hello. And Joe Eames. Hey, everybody. All right. And today, we don't have a guest. This is a little bit of an unusual episode. But instead, we are talking about the topic of code automation. And we did a little bit of discussion before we started recording about like what exactly code automation means. And it seems like we have like a lot of different ideas for what it can mean. You know, it's just like automating things that are involved with code or coding. So, you know, so that can include like running development tasks, continuous integration, tooling to review code, uh, you know, like linters and formatters, uh, tools and services that, you know, review code quality and tell you about potential smells uh, and also generators like Hygen. We might even get into some more stuff too. So, yeah. I um when we first talk, started talking about this topic, I was almost like, isn't that like code is what code automation is, right? Like the whole point of code in general is to do something that we don't want to do ourselves manually, right? I was that's where my mind went was calculating ballistics tables in World War II. <laughs> so automating the automation is what we're talking about today. Right. It's it's, got we're getting meta fast. Yeah, we're getting meta. <laughs> <Steve>. <laughs> One of the things that I thought about, which as we didn't even talk about this topic, is DHH and Rails, right? Who was, I think, in my opinion, drastically undercredited for how revolutionary uh, his ideas were and how much they changed the face of development in general. But, you know, his point was, there's so many things as a programmer that I do that take too much time. And so I want to put together a framework that makes all this easier and faster for me. And we all benefit from that today and in various forms as each of the frameworks and other tools that we use pick things along an opinionated line, an unopinionated line. And now we have like this wide smattering of tools that helps us out in various ways, like the, the stuff you were just talking about, all these different types of what we call really truly automation code, code automation tools. Yeah, definitely. I- I started my web development career with Rails. Uh, well, I almost started. I, I started like my serious web development career with Rails. I was doing <laughs> um, like not really knowing what I was doing with WordPress before. I'm not saying people who do WordPress aren't like real web developers, but what I was doing was was barely anything. <laughs> right. Um, so when I when I started really building backends uh, and and getting deep into stuff and like dealing with databases and stuff like that, I, I was using Rails, and that has informed a lot of like what I still do for projects that I'm working on. I absolutely agree. Mm-hmm. Oh man, Rails is I, I could fanboy all over Rails for a long time when I started picking up Rails. I've been programming for a while, and I was just blown away by how novel and how cool it was, and just that whole concept of how much he put together automated testing and stuff like that. It was, it was a, it was a great, absolutely is a fantastic framework. It also inspired Greg Pollock from code school that we had on a couple episodes ago. And right. when he started, he definitely was inspired by DHH. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into one thing that I think rails did really well that a lot of people appreciated, which was generators. So generators is also something that isn't as popular in the JavaScript community in general, I think. And, and that includes the view community. So first, does someone want to define like what generators are? Do you okay. have to play nose goes, right? Everybody it, touches their nose. The last person who touches their nose has to do it. It, it might not work as well for an audio medium. <laughs> Eric, everybody's got their video on, but Eric, so Eric can thank you was first. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, I think of generators as like you have your tooling and you want to build some scaffolding for your app really quickly and easily, and you can use it to generate it. Like with VCLI, you can use a generator to to create it. So like, what's what's an example of a generator? Like, what's what's a specific problem and how would a generator help solve that problem? 
like you wanted to generate a component and you didn't want to remember all the syntax and boilerplate to mm. create a component. You can create a gen- use a generator to create it. I think there's an interesting question to throw in there, and that is, if what if I'm talking about like a little, basically a snippet, right? Just to create, you know, say I'm using um, a component uh, with TypeScript and a decorator, right? I just do a snippet to just give me the decorator syntax, but nothing else. Would we consider that, is that a, is that a template? for one thing. And then, you know, I, I, to me, it seems like snippets are far more popular today mm-hmm. than templates are. Yeah, at least within, within the JS community. You know, so people will still manually create the new like component file in Eric's example. But, you know, they might use a snippet to generate that boilerplate so they can get coding right away and, you know, actually type the, the interesting stuff that is specific to that component. Me, I'm a copy paster. I prefer that over temp over a generator. I copy and paste something else, delete out everything else. Then I might use a few snippets in there, but I prefer that over a, a generator. In the at least the, in all the stuff I do. So in my view enterprise boilerplate project, I actually include uh, a generator and some commands for it. Uh, the generator is called Hygen, and it can be used for like any kind of project. And you know it. Works really like you write the generators in JavaScript. So I think it's ideal for JavaScript projects. And uh, it allows me to do things like create a component that, you know, would have all the things that a snippet would have in it, but then also create like an accompanying unit test with a basic test just to make sure that like a component is being exported from, from the .view file or something like that. And so it becomes a tool to not only like save you some time in the boilerplate, but also making it easy to do the right thing, like making it easy to, to have a unit test with each component. Because otherwise, like it's, it's one more file that you have to remember to create. And then there's like a little bit of boilerplate that you have to do there. And uh, I guess you could automate it, but you have to create a snippet for that too. You know, so just like making it super simple. And that's something that Rails did too, that I, I mean, I didn't, I didn't come up with this. <laughs> I didn't come up with any of these things. Um, when, you, when you created a lot of uh, files, it would automatically create a test for you too, as long as you were using tests in your project, which was great. It made it so much easier to do, to do test-driven development. Yeah, that's exactly how, how Angular does it. With Angular CLI and so does Ember CLI, when you, you can generate components or services or guards, it actually generates the, the spec file for you for the testing, makes things a little bit easier. I thought, I thought Vue CLI 3, were they thinking about adding that feature in to do more generators? Yeah, it's still, it's still being considered, and it, and it probably will happen. So that's cool. So that, that might happen one day, too. Yeah, it, it saves me time. I've done back and forth. I have, you know, I have my Visual Studio extensions, so I have all the snippets that you just type in three, word, three letters, and you can just create a component in a second. Mm-hmm. But having something, yeah, doing multiple files, being a little bit more smarter, I think that definitely saves some time. For beginners, maybe not so much. I'm thinking like if you're brand new to JavaScript, like using the generators and scaffolding and stuff, you may not know what exactly what's happening. And then when you need to go outside of it, you'll be like, well, it generated these files for me, but I'm not really sure what they all are or what they do. So you could mm-hmm. run into a problem when you want to extend it. Yeah, I think in, in Rails that can be a problem sometimes. But it also like allows you to like have a place to start asking questions. You know, like you can you can Google like what this file is that was generated. You know, if it's part of the official project. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, and I remember when I first was first using Rails, people were saying, "Yeah, don't like they people hated the generators. They had it. They mm-hmm. hated." that whole that whole thing because they it never did exactly what they wanted but i don't know i I think it's you know it's really helpful like you said gets you up up and running quickly yeah and uh, this may not have been true at the very beginning of rails but uh you know at at some point you were able to customize them so even if it wasn't doing exactly what you wanted to do it could still save you time just you know change it to do exactly what you want to do and you can do the same thing with the with the generators and uh view enterprise boilerplate as well does create create React app? Does I don't even know if they use generators. Not that I recall. Not the last time I used it, but I, I could be wrong. Yep. Divi, do you happen to know? Have you used it more recently than me? I'm not super familiar with that. No. Yeah. So 
how many of us in like our daily development work actually use generators? I'm curious. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah, I with Angular CLI. Um, I'm, I'm on Angular 6 project. And uh, yeah, every time I want to just quickly create a component because it, it just makes it just a little bit easier. I just do NGC or NGGC and basically generate component and then put the path where I want it. And then it creates the spec file and the component file and the CSS file. Because in Angular, you have everything's broken up in different files and like yeah. the single file so component. There's even more value. Yep. Wow. Yeah, it's similar to Vue CLI as well. Because Vue CLI allows you to just like spin up a project and then it has like, it's essentially, it follows the zero configuration rule or like the workflow. And so you just spin it up and everything is already set up for you. So you can just like start coding and your development environment, everything is already set up. So it's pretty easy. Most of the development that I do is, you know, like most generally just me and smaller projects, right? Do you feel like that has a difference in the value of templates or using generators? Sorry, that um, as you get bigger, you get more process and standards around it that the generators make a, you know, I don't always use a testing file, for example. Sometimes I do inline my templates, et cetera. So sometimes I feel like I'm working against the generators and I feel more friction with the generators. Whereas I can imagine if I was working on a bigger team, maybe then, you know, things are more standardized. Do you feel like that's true? Absolutely for me. I mean, that's one of the reasons I include it in the enterprise boilerplate, you know, because when I'm working on a larger team, that's when those generators have the most value. You know, when I'm, when I'm coding by myself, it's like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Like I have like shortcuts in my editor and stuff to create new files quickly and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty hardcore user, so I have a lot of snippets that I like to use. But for a big team, like when you want to be coding things in a consistent way and organizing things in a consistent way, it can be a good way to like onboard people too. So like when they want to create a new component, if they're not sure like where the components are, for example, or where the views are, where the layouts are, or whatever it happens to be, they can, you know, run the command to create a new thing of that and then see where all the relevant files are that have been created. So it can be sort of like a, like a tiny bit of a documentation tool. Like I think there's some documentation benefit there. I think it also standardizes stuff because I've worked on teams where I have a specific way of working and my editor has a specific way of like organizing my code versus like a coworkers. And then you end up getting into arguments because you're like, mine is better, obviously. <laughs> and so if on a team you already have the customization in place, then it's a matter of you're just fighting the, the machine essentially because the machine makes the decision for you and it's pretty arbitrary that way. It prevents a lot of future conflicts, which is nice. <laughs> Yeah, and this is actually a really good segue, I think, into like tooling to review code. You know, so instead of, you know, submitting pull requests to each other and then adding re and removing semicolons from each other's PRs because, you know, one person wants like a semicolonless workflow and the other person wants semicolons everywhere, <laughs> which is a, a total waste of time for, you know, like smart developers. You know, they shouldn't have to worry about those things. So it, as long as you can agree on a style, then tools like ESLint uh, and Prettier can like automatically catch, you know, style errors and and can format your code exactly the way that you want it. And I, I guess let's let's talk about Prettier first, since that one is probably the easiest to explain. I'd like. I, I was also hoping we could like take a poll. We got four of us here. ESLint or Prettier or or neither. Both. Both. Really. Yeah. Both. I'm, I'm prettier. Yeah, because ESLint will catch a, things that, a lot of things that prettier can't. Right. Uh, but I defer to prettier and everything else. So I, I use, uh, and also I use in uh, Vue Enterprise Boilerplate. I'm going to be talking about this a lot. Sorry today. <laughs> I do a lot of automation in Vue Enterprise Boilerplate. Um, I have uh, some configs set up in ESLint to override any styles or, or like any rules in ESLint that might interfere with something in Prettier. So that, you know, I, I can use like a base set like standard or something like that or whatever, you know, Airbnb, whatever you'd like. And there are Prettier overrides for those so that you can still have all of the benefits of those without having to deal with, 
you know, it like trying to auto fix something uh, and then prettier trying to override that and then them fighting with each other. Yeah, that's the worst. So like your ES lint is set up one way, like maybe no semicolons, but your prettier set up with semicolons. So every time you save, it adds a semicolon. And then if you have that turned on in your IDE, you get a little squiggly lines every time you save because something's not right between both. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of annoying. I've, yeah, I definitely, so- I definitely like a prettier. Yeah, it's really anytime I work on a, a project, I try to set that up. So that way I just... So, um, just make sure it matches the, the rules that we've set up for the project. And every time I save, I just automatically save and it just formats everything really nicely for me. And I'm like, wow, this is so, so nice. I like T- Taking it. a step back though, like what is prettier? I don't think we've defined that yet. Uh, it, it's a, an opinionated code formatter. So as, as officially says on the webpage, so it supports many languages and it integrates with most editors. So you can either integrate it into your ESLint or you can integrate it into your your integrated development environment like Visual Studio Code or Sublime or whatever you have. And then you can set certain things so that uh, when you save, it formats your code and adds semicolons or it adds in brackets with spaces or no spaces and things like that. It's things, little nitpicky things that if you ever worked in open source projects, when you submit pull requests and they say, this is not the right format or you have a semicolon here or we want this if and else in the same line. I mean, things like that, it helps you with. And also it means that I can actually just write in the style that I prefer. So for me, for example, um, I don't, I don't really see a point in adding semicolons where they don't do anything, <laughs> adding characters that don't do anything to my code. So I can, I can write in like semicolonless code. And if I'm working on a team that prefers those semicolons that don't happen to do anything, uh, you know, to visually, to add visual clutter because it makes them feel better. Um, no bias here at all. Uh, then <laughs> I, I can I can just write in my semicolon the style. It'll automatically add those semicolons, and I can I can push up. Everybody's happy. You know I don't have to type those semicolons, and they still get to see those semicolons. Awesome. Oh, FYI, you and I are no longer friends. <laughs> oh yeah, I figured. I figured. <laughs> I, I th- yeah, we, we talk about it afterwards. I thought about taking a poll just so I knew like who I was no longer on speaking terms with. <laughs> right. <after this> <laughs> podcast. <laughs> you know what's really funny is I tend to be semi uh, semi semicolonless. Semi semicolonless. <laughs> yep. But what it's a lot of laziness. It's like I prefer to put them in, but half the time I'm typing and I've just forget and hit enter to the next line. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I'd have to go back up and add that semicolon. I forget, meh, let prettier take care of it. Yeah, pr- pretty will take care of it. So, so you're finding yourself more and more writing like a semicolon uh-huh. version uh-huh. That's, that prettier makes semi, yeah. Yep, yep. Cool, but yeah, prettier does have some configuration options uh, to uh, change whether like what you'd like to do in most cases where people have disagreements. Uh, and there are very few cases where I actually disagree with Prettier. I think there's only one case that consistently annoys me, which is their spacing of parentheses um, after function declarations. Uh, for function declarations, I like to have a space be- before the parenthesis. And that way it's, it's super like ridiculously easy for anyone to find like the function definition versus where the function is called. It's, it's just superior, but they don't have an option to not have that. Hmm. They, they, they should just change it so that that is the style, but uh, they have not done that yet because there is, there is absolutely no advantage to, to their style and there are advantages to my style, but that's okay. Anyway, I'll try to, I'll try to tone it down a little bit. <laughs> Getting a little bit too opinionated. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Chris, come on. Come Sorry on. for flying off the handle there, everyone. <laughs> you did start with Rails, so being opinionated would come naturally. Yeah, but I, I will try to tone it down. I'm sorry. I apologize. Every, everybody uh, can use the stuff that they use, and it's all good. And no, in my opinion, you should tone as long it up. As tone it up. Absolutely. Be more controversial. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. I'll get so much like angry email. Those are the, those are the episodes I love. <laughs> No, I don't want people, I don't want, please don't, whoever you are and whatever you disagreed with, please don't tweet at me letting me know that you disagreed and why you disagreed. Like, (laughs) I've thought about these things a lot. Honestly, 
in my mind, I, I'm still going to think like, I'm probably right. I, I, I'm thinking in my head right now that like, you probably don't have anything that I haven't heard already before from like lots of other people. So you just keep it to yourself and I might be wrong and I might be wrong. And maybe one day I'll, I'll realize the error of my ways. Okay. So toning down, starting now. <laughs> and we just all get along. So that's what prettier is. And ESLint, you know, some people only use prettier or ESLint. I like to use both because it can catch things that prettier can't, that maybe don't have to do with formatting specifically, but are more about general code style. Uh, so for example, some people like to prefer uh, const if something is never redefined. And some people like prefer to not use const like ever because, you know, in, in their minds, they'll think like, oh, it's not really a, it's not really a constant in the sense that, you know, this thing is immutable, um, which I, I don't know if that's really what a constant means. I think it means it can't be reassigned. And in those cases, it is a constant. But gosh, I said I would tone it down. Take it easy, Chris. <laughs> yeah, when I'm writing, I always get those. I think the, like the default Angular, maybe also Vue, is to use const. Was it? I think I'm not sure if Vue. Oh, yeah. Vue doesn't care whether you use okay. const or not. In the uh, TS config file, you, yeah, for, for Angular it is. Yeah, Vue, Vue doesn't really care about code style like that. We don't even care about like semicolons and stuff like that. Uh, even though I think most people on the team prefer semicolon with style, in case you're curious. I just remember the first time I used Vue CLI a while back when they still had, by default, if your ESLint failed, that it would just throw a big error up on your screen. <laughs> yeah, that was awful. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, we, we no longer do that. We'll still give you a warning, but it won't give you an error by default. It won't halt compilation. Yep, I remember that. Yeah, and it, you're absolutely right. That was, that was a bad choice. Uh, but honestly, I think at the time, we just didn't even know that it was an option to like <laughs> have a warning. Like a lot of people, a lot of people assume like, oh yeah, the people building these tools just like know everything about like every single like tooling library that they're using. But honestly, like we're just like trying to read the documentation, do the best we can. And like, that's an area where we missed something that would have been better. And then, and then we realized our mistake and we made it better. That's good. But yeah. We're all just figuring things out as we go. And uh, once in a while, just like, uh, pinging Sean Larkin from the Webpack team when we really can't figure something out. <laughs> <laughs> Next topic. Yeah, so one of the things, this actually wasn't on the list that we talked about, but something that I like to do as part of like the automated code review is have ESLint and Prettier and other linters. Like I, I like to use like Markdown Lint and StyleLint as well. Uh, and also my unit tests, I like to have all of these things run on a pre uh, on a pre commit hook only on the files that are staged. So you know, a lot of people think like, oh gosh, like all of my linters like all together, like that might take like a couple minutes to finish. But if you pass in only the specific files that that you have staged, then that actually happens really quickly, and it can ensure that like even if you've you know, like, let's say you're normally coding in VS Code and you have like ESLint and Prettier integrated and everything like that. Uh, but, you know, there's this one file that you wanted to edit real quick. So you opened it up in Vim, you know, which maybe doesn't have those things integrated. Then uh, you can still guarantee that uh, everything has the correct style. Uh, and you can even auto fix it so that if, you know, if it is something auto fixable, it doesn't stop you. It just like fixes those things. Um, re-adds the file with Git and then commits it so that you don't even ever have to know that there was an error. You can just get on with your day. Uh, and that way people also can't like push with failing unit tests. Before I did this, uh, like happened all the time. You know, people would just like push, you, like, you know, would update a file without updating the unit tests and then you know, it would go through continuous integration, which we'll talk about soon. And continuous integration would say like, oh, hey, when we ran your unit test, it looks like some tests failed. Uh, and then, you know, you see that or someone tells you about that. And then you go back and you try to fix those. And then you push up again. And then you see if it passes. Uh, or you actually, you know, run the test locally. 
And and this way, that kind of thing isn't isn't possible. I'm c- kind of curious though. I don't know that many people who also use pre-commit hooks. That is really know? smart. I we don't use pre-commit hooks. I want to learn this magic of yours. Ooh, I, so it's in View Enterprise Boilerplate. Surprise, ah. surprise. <laughs> so if you if you check out what I'm doing there, it's using uh, Yorkie, um, which is provided by View CLI, uh, and also a package called Lint Staged, and a bunch of different linters and uh, unit tests with Jest. And, and actually, there's one other thing that I didn't talk about. Uh, so a lot of people will. Uh, like run different tools to minify their images, like to compress them the, the most possible so that, you know, people on the web aren't downloading huge images. And I, there's a tool called Image Min Lint Staged that is built for integrating with Lint Stage that will automatically like minify all of your images for you when you commit them. Nice. Which is really cool. Uh, and even has other benefits. Like if you have people that are working on the team on a slow connection, you know, sometimes, you know, cloning down, um, you know, or pulling down those big images can take a while and slow them down. And this way it doesn't. It's very smart. Yeah. Anything to do to save time. And cause I've done that before. I forgot to run yeah. my tests before I've run a push and I'm like, dang it. And then get the CI breaks and I'm like, oh, I guess now I have to go and fix it and then push it up again. And then, you know, the reviewer is like, tests are failing. I'm like I see it. And then yeah. we finally get it going. So if I could minimize that error, that would be, that'd be good. good. Yeah. And there, there are so many, like, there's so many problems in web development that actually do require like a human brain right now <laughs> in order to solve. And so the, the more stuff that I can offload, the, the better. Every time I'm doing something like this, it drives me a little bit insane. Like every, every time I have to, you know, say in a pull request, um, like, Hey, you know, we should actually use const here <laughs> or something like that. You know, I'll just, I'll just, I, I don't like to do that. I'd prefer to just have people say, hey, we prefer to use const here in the future. Since we don't have this rule, let's also like add this rule as part of this PR so that we don't ever have to do this again. Okay. So that that kind of brings us into continuous integration. You know, so if there's stuff that gets through after um, after a pre-commit hook, you know, and after you know running linters locally and stuff like that, you know, in an editor or something like that, then uh, when you like create a pull request or push something to a branch, sometimes there are these services like uh, Travis CI or CodeShip or Circle CI that will go through and like run some tasks to like make sure that your project builds correctly, make sure that unit tests pass, make sure that end-to-end tests pass, and you know maybe maybe actually deploy your site if all of that happens and it's on a specific branch, like a production branch or a master branch. Uh, so I, do, do you, I, I like to use tools like this. It also like integrates with GitHub and GitLab. And actually GitLab has their own continuous integration services uh, that they integrate. So that like on an actual pull request, you can see when all of the, the tests are passing. So whenever you're reviewing something, you don't have to check to see like, oh, okay, well, our test still passing? Like it just tells you. And then you can get to like, okay, so we know that this like, this like this doesn't completely break the site. Moving on from that, uh, like does the code look good? You can focus on that from a development standpoint. Um, I myself, even though I've used, a fair, done a fair amount of like really large scale uh, apps, haven't really used some of the, these are like, I would say sort of current gen uh, CI tools. Uh, I played around a little bit with Circle CI. I thought that was really cool, but I haven't used a, a lot of these a ton, even on the big team. So I'm interested to hear if other people have more experience of how those uh, they've really worked out for you. I imagine, you know, like a lot of DevOps, it's one of those things. If you spend enough, a reasonable amount of time, get it configured well, all of a sudden it just saves a lot of time, you know, over months and years. Deploy more, pay less with DigitalOcean. 
the simplest all-in-one cloud computing platform for developers. Scale and run cloud applications faster and more efficiently with effortless administration tools to robust compute, flexible configurations, networking services, real-time alerts, and rapid provisioning while enjoying industry-leading price to performance with a flat pricing structure across all global data center regions at any usage volume. Spend more time building better web apps and less time worrying about managing infrastructure with DigitalOcean. Build your next app on DigitalOcean. Get started with a free $100 credit at do slash co slash views on view. Yeah, depending on who your DevOps guys are, I mean, this could be a pain, especially if you're not using a service that might not be as simple to integrate everything you're trying to do, but it saves you a bunch of time in the long run. But you definitely have to have a take the time up front to like set these tools up like Jenkins or CircleCI or, or whatever you're using and get it integrated in with your Git or Git bucket or whatever you're using. Right. Yeah. And if people want to see an example of a Circle CI integration, they can check out View Enterprise Boilerplate. <laughs> <laughs> I think we need to rename the podcast. <laughs> to just View Enterprise Boilerplate? Yeah. And friends. <laughs> In- introducing. Yeah. And commentary. Um, I've used I've used um, CI specifically for testing. I've used it somewhat for um, like linting and so on as well, but mostly for testing, just because I find that there's a lot of code that I would write that might interact with another piece of code that I didn't think about, and like for some reason I didn't run my test locally because sometimes it's always um, you can have your test running locally, <laughs> but it can be heavy if you have to run like the entire test suite each time that mm-hmm. you're writing your code. And so um, when I'm developing locally, I'll have like the specific test that I'm working on, or the specific piece yeah. of code, like that test suite to run, but not everything else. And so with CI, it'll run the entire build and check that what I did didn't mess anything else up. I, I'm going to share. I'm going to share a secret. I never run all of my end-to-end tests locally. When I'm yeah, developing something, like I, yeah, it, it also like once an application, once you've been developing an application for a while, like it might take like five, ten, maybe more minutes for that to finish. So like, if I think it's probably fine, do I want to just sit around for that time and and do nothing? Like, don't, don't you want extra time like, to play video games? <laughs> I guess these are billable. I do bill by the hour, uh, so <laughs> I, I could. But it, it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like a good use of my time. No, uh, no, definitely not. And also, like fifteen, like ten, five, ten, fifteen minutes—is that really enough to like get into like a good game? I don't know. <laughs> Maybe uh, it depends. Certainly not Fortnite. <laughs> Maybe you can play some Pokemon Go around your neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you have better self control than I do. <laughs> Um, I've, I myself used circle CI for like a smallish type project. I really liked it, but I did feel like I felt enough friction with it that for me, it wasn't just an automatic. Oh my gosh. All I'm ever going to do is use this ever again. You know, what was the friction Uh, for you? Uh, some of the friction was like decisions on which branches, how we, how the code flows for branch to branch to branch, and then getting circle CI set up with that. So we, I kind of did it one way. And then one of the other developers on the project, because it was just a small three-developer project, said, hey, I, I think we should do it this way. And I was like, okay. So then when I reconfigured things, then I started running into, and I would say on the scope of friction, right? There's mm-hmm. you know zero friction view and there's maximum friction Oracle and Circle CI was really close to view on that scale, right? Uh-huh. Like a very small amount of friction. But... Um, there was enough friction that I noticed it. And I think maybe maybe it's just the matter of DevOps. Is a lot of DevOps configuration just feels like friction because it's a lot of retrying and retrying and retrying until things are, are right, you know? Yeah. And, and CircleCI does have a tool to like run a build locally mm-hmm. so that you can, you can test it out. But I think that doesn't... I, I've had some problems that like seemed to work fine when I ran it locally, but then didn't work when I did it on Circle CI. Right. You right. know, so sometimes I do just have like a bunch of commits in a row. Um, or usually, <laughs> usually I'll amend the previous commit so that it doesn't, you can't, so that people can't tell like I've, I've done this like crazy trial and error. It was like, well, I don't know. Let's, you know, throw something at the wall and see if it sticks. <laughs> Let's see if this works. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> 
Oh, uh, yeah. Those, those awesome commits when you're testing your CI system where you've added a space or added a blank line. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so you, can, you can use git commit dash dash amend if you want to like just like uh, recommit your last commit with these new changes to erase the, the shameful history that you are just like <laughs> throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what happens. Have you what ever, do you rebase too? I know some development shops. Oh, like, to like squash want, it? Yeah, to squash. They, they, they hate it if you have more than like one every time you put up a pull request. I rebase like a lot. <laughs> I mean, that's you, because I, I worked at an agency where there were like tons of people working in the same repository. And so they were like trying to reduce the number of commits just because if you want to roll back, it makes it easier to look at. And so I've become, I think just inadvertently become someone who rebased just by nature of like habit rather than anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I could go both ways. I, and I don't really have strong opinions. Um, but I, I like rebasing because I like pure history. And I think I've argued with Chris about this uh, regarding uh, view CLI making a commit for you. Yeah. When <laughs> When Divya says uh, she likes pure history, what she means is she likes throwing away data. It's not throwing away data. It's, it's, um, it's more like gardening and, uh, you know, like weeding out data you don't need. Mm, until you need it. Ah, yeah, I usually don't need it. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, haven't you forgotten I'm perfect? That's true. I forget. That's, that's a good point. I, I concede. Divya's life motto is YOLO. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So I, I personally do not rebase squash before I do a pull request, but I, I can I can see the point. Like before GitHub, and I think GitLab has this as well now, um, where you can actually like squash and merge. Hmm. So like that that does the rebase for you, like the interactive rebase to like uh, squash everything down to a single commit. Uh, and in the commit message, it just lists all the other commit messages. And so uh, this way, when people are reviewing the code, they can still like walk through the process that you went through. And also like if, you know, they asked you to make some changes and you make some changes um, and you like push it up, they can see the changes that were made in that last commit since the last time they reviewed, which I think is really useful. I find it really useful when I'm doing code reviews. Um, but yeah, you, you can still, and I, I often do prefer the, the squash and merge option on oh, a lot yeah. of repositories. I haven't turned that on in our projects, but yeah, I, yeah, I see that you can do allow squash merging. Yep. And, and GitHub actually has a setting, I think, and maybe GitLab does too, to um, make that the default, I think. Yeah, I'm looking up. Yeah, I, I see it looks like you can make a default if you're the admin of the repository. And I'm usually the admin. D Divya, did you have uh, I think you were about to say something. Oh, um, I was just wondering if I've not actually used the squash and merge uh, feature. I was curious if you have any control over what gets squashed or it's just everything gets squashed and merged as a whole. Everything gets squashed as one commit, yeah. I mean, you could, you could technically like do it yourself and then have some more control. Git commit dash dash amend. <laughs> No, it would be a uh, git rebase dash dash interactive. Oh, yes. Dash I. You mean dash yeah. I? Dash I. I. I'm just trying to be more like more verbose. So whenever I, this is, this is a thing that is sort of separate, but it's related to what you just said. Whenever I'm documenting these things, I always like to use the more verbose version because it's a lot easier for someone to like, if they're like git rebase like dash I, it's really hard for them to Google like, rebase dash i but it's very easy for them to mm -hmm. uh like google uh get rebase dash dash interactive that's fair like that's they're fair. more likely to find good results and and they'll know how to ask a good question about it too no totally i agree uh it's it's interesting you say that because i think when i was using npm like when i first started out i used npm install dash dash save dash dev like the very verbose commands and I think yeah. I spoke to like one developer and he was like, why, why are you doing that? That's, that's dumb. Like, why don't you just do dash capital D? And I'm just oh, like, gosh. ah, it's the same thing. I, I hate people like that. And with, with like auto-completion. So like I do a lot of uh, control, like control R 
and then like typing in a command so that it just like picks out from my history, like the last time I typed that command. Yeah, yeah. And and that saves me a lot of time. And that way, like I can do the, although I don't know, I, I'm inconsistent for, for my, for me personally, I also have a bunch of aliases set up. So instead of like get status, I just type in GST and then enter. Cause like, I, I that's yeah, something yeah, that I, yeah. I'll type like all the time that's and funny. ain't nobody got time for like get status. Ain't nobody like, got time. Yeah. I got time for that. Yeah. I do the same thing with, uh, I use Z shell, Z shell. They have like plugins and it has a Git plugin that has like GSSS for Git status and that helps. And aliases for all possible misspellings. Yeah. So I guess alias is, is that like a sort of like code automation? I guess so. I mean, I would say, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's like the huge umbrella and it's like a productivity tool. So it's under we're under tooling, right? We're talking about tooling. So yeah, well, we're talking about continuous integration. I, 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 yeah, we're talking oh, yes. about yeah, code yeah, automation, yeah. Like in general. automation, and then tooling, and then CI. So it's not uh, CI, but right now is technically supposed to be about CI. But anyway, but back back to CI. I think one of the one of the biggest pain points that I've heard from people is builds failing when there's nothing wrong, and usually the end to end tests are to blame. Like, you know, with Nightwatch or something like that. Has, who, who here, uh, I think Joe stepped out for a second, but Eric and Divya, have you ever experienced this where, you know, you're using continuous integration and the builds randomly fail and developers are saying like, well, it's probably fine. So we could probably just merge. Mine hasn't been really end to end, but the last time that happened was like related to time zones because my test was running like, on a different time zone from the one that I was on was, mm. yeah. And so, cause it was using like the JavaScript time zone. And so it was building on like whatever circle CI was running on. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, why is this wrong? <laughs> cause I kept checking and I was like, I'm crazy. Locally, all my tests run and like work. Um, and then that, I, I, and I'm sure that's a common trope amongst all developers where you're like, uh, time zones doesn't make sense. But yeah, that's been the, the one scenario for me. Yeah, it doesn't happen too often. Every now and then uh, we'll have some weird issue and all the builds will fail. And I think one time we still pushed, but we have also, the, with part of the CI that we have, it also does, it actually deploys the sites for us too, for our QA and mm-hmm. pre-prod and stuff like that. So even if we pushed it, like we really need it to be pushed to the, those sites too. And so if it's not building right, it's never going to push. Yeah. But but that's kind of a danger of the intermittent failures in continuous integration. Like when you stop test, when you stop trusting that, like when a test fails, for example, that there's actually something wrong or a build fails, that there's actually something wrong, then like they, they kind of become useless. Yeah, exactly. And usually we end up talking to one of our DevOps guys and they look into it and like, oh, this happened or I had to restart the server. Those are the weird ones where it's like, there was nothing wrong with the code, but something happened with the server. Uh, we don't have like, we we're, like if we're using something like Jenkins and we're running our own so, um, our own servers, sometimes we have to do that. Yeah, I think the, the value of a good DevOps person uh, can't be underestimated. They're they usually... Old. Yeah, usually it's just some like some developer who happens to also like run Linux on their laptop. <laughs> that's that's been me at various points in my career. Uh, even though I am not, I I, I gosh, I, I am nothing. I make so many mistakes compared to all these people who who actually do it as their main thing. Like it, it really is like a discipline in and of itself. You know, I'm like SSHing into live servers uh, and stuff like that, whereas other people are like just creating like really intricate like uh, Docker containers and stuff like that, and like whole clusters of like Docker containers that work together and stuff that I've done like a little bit of, but I I really can't do it well. Yeah, that that gets really complicated when you start um, getting Docker containers and Kubernetes, and and you have different. Uh, yeah, fallback, HA stuff. It it can get quite complicated. Yeah, and I guess I guess DevOps like that. 
it's sort of like when I think of operations for development, you know, I think mostly of automation, like they're automating something that normally you'd have to do manually. Right. So that's kind of their whole job. We we really should have like a DevOps person here. We should. I was just talking to uh, a DevOps friend before this. Uh, Should have brought her on at the last minute. (laughs) She's in the right time zone for it. Uh, and she, she does a lot of you stuff. Maybe we'll have to have her on sometime. Cool, cool. So something else I'm thinking of is, you know, we've, this is sort of involved in a lot of the other, you know, when we talked about like running ESLint and prettier, uh, you know, how do we actually run those things? Like how do we run development tasks and how do we run tests? You know, there have been different tools that have been popular uh, in the past and are still like uh, used and useful, like Grunt and Gulp. I think those are probably the, the two most popular ones historically. And, and now for me personally, I'm using NPM scripts combined with Webpack, which, you know, Webpack isn't really for defining development tasks, but more like pipelines, yeah, so I mean it, it did seem like there was this huge <clears throat> explosion in tasks uh through Gulp, Grunt and Gulp there for quite a few years. And then uh the industry sort of at large has really defaulted to Webpack. And it's interesting again because we had all these grunt gulp tasks and gulp tasks, and now we're using Webpack. So, really, where has all that stuff gone? Has everybody like npm scripts have obviously been a natural replacement for grunt and gulp when people go to Webpack? But at least to me, it feels like I'm doing less and less of creating a grunt task or a gulp task. Maybe that's a matter of the fact that our CI tools are getting more complex and um, Webpack itself is getting more complex. So, a lot of just things are just done automatically on, you know, on save and on check-in and we're doing fewer things like on our own. You know, of course we run tests, you know, tests and stuff generally, but again, that's mostly through an NPM script. Yeah. I think part of it is that there's so much that really needs to be done with awareness of a module system, you know? So when you're like requiring an image, you know, uh, deciding whether to like, you know, base 64 encode and inline that image to like save space to sort of do like automatic sprite cheating uh, or to, um, you know, uh, minify that and, you know, put it in a specific place in production, stuff like that. Like sometimes that reference might only be in like an HTML file or in, you know, a, a JavaScript file or a CSS file. And being able to follow those references becomes very important. And that's when like, tools like Webpack, I think, uh, really shine. And tools like Grunt or Gulp like, weren't really made for that. You know, they were meant to be like, more general purpose task managers, to, like, to take all these files and then minify them and then drop them in this folder. Um, or take all these files and then like, you know, transpile them you know, maybe from like CoffeeScript to JavaScript or something like that, or from ES, you know, 2015 plus to to JavaScript, and then put them in a folder, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm just glad as a developer that for the most part in the projects I work on, I haven't had to like deep dive into Webpack and figure out like why things aren't getting done. I mean, eventually I'm probably going to run into that situation, um, unless someone else on the team deals with that, but I'm glad it's like these tools, like everything's done for me and it just works. And I don't have to learn all that and look in the documentation to how to minify my code and get it ready for production. Yeah, I've, I've sort of become like an accidental Webpack expert <laughs> where like that was never my intention. Like I never sat down and thought like, you know what, like I'm, I'm just going to learn a lot about Webpack. This is something I'm really interested in. But I kept like having problems that I wanted to be solved and no one else was willing to solve them. And so I just kept learning more and more and more. And then like eventually like maintaining like Webpack templates and stuff like that. And now it's kind of funny, like a lot of my consulting work is, you know, people hire me for Vue usually uh, these days, but a lot of that is actually kind of Webpack consulting. (laughs) 
because one of the biggest pain points for people is how their Webpack is set up. And I'm really grateful for Vue CLI 3 because like, that'll make it so that I'll have to do less and less of that. Although, you know, there's, there's usually something in like big enterprise projects that needs to be configured. So it won't get rid of it completely, but gosh, whenever I can stop doing like the, the same things over and over again, and I can get right to the most more interesting problems. That's what makes me happy. That's why, that's why I built the enterprise builder put in the first place. What's a common like webpack configuration that you have to do for clients sometimes that you have to go out of the box from what Vue gives you? From what Vue CLI 3 gives you? Yeah. A really common one is proxies. So if like there's a, a backend that uh, users want to run locally, like let's say, you know, we were talking about Rails earlier. Let's say you're running Rails on localhost, you know, port 3000. Mm-hmm. and you're running your front end on localhost port 8080, and you want your back end to, to just like be at, you know, forward slash API of the base. So you want them to kind of like be on the same domain um, because that's what they'll actually be in production. Mm. And so in this case, you can set it up so that... Uh, View CLI proxies, anything that starts with like forward slash API forward slash to, um, to your backend. Uh, yeah. And that way you can use everything through like localhost 8080 and uh, view itself can like access that uh, without having to, you know, I, I guess, I is, guess error. <laughs> yeah. And that's a feature, this is actually just an underlying feature of Webpack and using the Webpack development server. Yeah, specifically uh, so, Webpack dev server, yeah. Yeah, so this is the same thing with uh, the Angular CLI as well. And it, it's also one of the things that I dislike about um, how easy these CLIs make it for you because they run your front end for you. But then when you're actually running your front end, what you're doing is not the same thing as you're going to be doing in a more production environment. Because in a real production environment, you're not going to be running Webpack Dev Server, you're going to be running something else. And So there are some differences in there. I don't know that you encounter them all the time, but that's, it is one of the things that I'm not a huge, a huge fan of. I wish it were different. I don't know that I have a better solution by any means because it's harder to get your dev, dev set up running your, uh, an approximation of your production web server but of course that's what we did before we had webpack and webpack dev servers that's we ran it that way so i do miss out on on that aspect yeah another really common one is aliases mm-hmm. so s- setting up aliases um to you know make it so that when you say like at w- when you are requiring something that starts with at components it aliases to the components folder so that you can uh, you can reference things without having to do like dot dot forward slash dot dot forward slash dot dot forward slash uh, <laughs> components and then uh, you know forward slash maybe something else or you know like it, it can get really tedious and it also like these aliases make the app more um, more future proof like it's easier to refactor things restructure folders move things around. Um, without having to like change a bunch of um, references. And in fact, on some teams, I've used a rule where uh, the only time you can use a, uh, like a, a relative file reference is when it's in the same folder. In all other cases, you have to uh, use an alias or if an alias doesn't exist, define one. Mm, interesting. Yeah, I, I thought Nuxt has the at sign as an alias too. Yeah, they, they define some aliases for you by default. I think the at sign is source by default. But yeah. a, a lot of teams like have a very particular like structure that's unique to their app, and so they'll they'll define some aliases that are uh, unique to their app. And there's a little bit of work that needs to be done to get this working with Jest if you use Jest for unit tests, um, which you can see an example of how I define aliases in the Enterprise Builder Plate. <laughs> to make all that work seamlessly in those two environments. I think another common Webpack customization is when you have to use environment variables. 
that's one of the ones that I use a lot. I'm just like using .env or something because you would have to like configure in in your. I think I have it so that it's configured in Webpack to like pull the .env stuff that doesn't get checked into GitHub, um, and then you can just like use the environment variables without having to define them through, throughout the app, which is pretty nice and like really easy to do. Yeah, that is cool. Is that in view enterprise world? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't have, I, I don't actually have an environment variables. I, I thought about it, but like it's without like actually different environments, like it's hard to talk about, but I should at least add some documentation for it. You're right. Feature request. I guess, I guess, Doc request. I, guess I, I should add like a, at least a link to the documentation for environment. Mm-hmm. No, I th- actually, I think I do. I think I do that already. I think I linked to uh, Vue CLI's documentation for environment variables. Want to wrap this one up, Chris? Yeah, I think so. That's, that's all that I have to talk about. Does anyone else ha- have anything? No. Okay. Then let's move on with picks. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood, and I've been asked more times than I can count, how do I stay current? There's a lot to this question, and I'm working on a solution. Code badges. That's right. You heard me right. Basically, the idea is is that you come and do a code badge, and that gets you an introduction to a topic. Then you can decide if you want to pursue it further. But while working on the badge, you gain enough proficiency to be able to pick it up again if you need. A lot of technology comes through on the bleeding edge, and not all of it sticks, but the principles do. So doing badges on the technologies that will get you ahead will provide you with experience needed to stay competitive. Plus, it offers social proof that you know something about the topic. The project is on Kickstarter right now. You can support it and get on the launch list at codebadge.org. Who would like to go first? How about you, Joe? Sure. Of course, I want to mention again the Framework Summit coming up in early part of October. Uh, Arlen Chris Fritz will be giving talks there. Um, lately, I've been playing with a new... I've been trying wait, to wait, wait, talks? I'm giving multiple talks? <laughs> You're giving a 15-minute keynote, right, on the status of you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I guess, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, aren't you giving an, an actual, like, talk as well? Yeah, you're, you're right. I guess it's, I guess it's technically, I guess, yeah. like, two talks, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like two talks. But it's, it's, it's twice the crisp for half the price. I think I'm going to make that the sub, the, like, that's going to be the title in, on the website from now on, twice the crisp at half the price. You'll be like, who's, who's Chris? <laughs> Uh, so also in Chris, who is Chris Coyer going to be there? Oh man, I, I'm really looking forward to meeting him. Um, another thing I've lately, I've been trying to reorganize how I keep track of like just things that I need to do. I'm self-employed and I, I do a few different various activities. So I just have a lot of stuff going on. Plus I have a lot of personal stuff I have to keep track of. I do a lot of caretaking for my parents and just find that I'm overwhelmed by the sheer quantity of things I need to get done. So I've been trying to reorganize. I was using like one tool. I've been playing around with a couple of tools and two tools that um, I, I, I tried a bunch of different organization tools, but two tools that really jumped out at me were uh, Notion.so. Uh, it's kind of like the next iteration of a wiki, right? It, like you can craft as you're going and write things and organize the page like a wiki, but it has so many more features to it, including um, Kanban charts and calendars and things like that. And they're just like built right in. You just tell, I want a Kanban chart here on the page. or I want a calendar here on the page, or I want this to be a sub page that is its own Kanban. So it's really cool. And then the other one that I was just completely overwhelmed by how awesome it is, yet how simple it is, is workflowy. Uh, I'm just amazed at how it's super easy to pick it up and just start using it. And there, it is so deep and so powerful. I've watched a couple of YouTube videos to some people do some crazy, amazing things with Workflowy. So uh, including a chiropractor who figured out how to create a tickle file out of Workflowy where using tags and some custom search strings, he could create this behavior that just is nearly mind-boggling. So those are going to be my picks. Divya, how about your picks? Sure. So I've been reading a sci-fi book, surprise, surprise, by C.S. Lewis. He did a space trilogy, which, which I think isn't as popular as his other books, but the, I'm reading the first one called Out of the Silent Planet, which is, which is really, really good and interesting. And it's just about space and, and like extraterrestrial things, which is cool. And so that's one of my picks. And the second pick is 
I think Chris mentioned N.K. Jemison, who is a really great author. She wrote also a trilogy. I can't remember. I think Broken Earth was what it's yeah, called. Yeah, Broken Earth trilogy. Yeah, so apparently she's coming out with like a short story collection in the fall, which I'm really excited about because I think her writing is great. And um, Chris actually introduced me to her and I think she's wonderful. So that's my second pick. And then my last pick is also a recommendation by Chris. I clearly talked to him too much. But um, (laughs) there is is like a to-do app called Todoist that I recently started using because I was traveling a lot or at least I was in different time zones and it was very difficult for me to keep track of like all the things I needed to get done. And so that helped me give a sense of like, things I needed to do and prioritize them and then put dates on stuff that needs to get. So, so at least I can see like high priority and get things done and start knocking things off, which is pretty nice. That is all. Okay. So all of my picks right now are games. Uh, or, I thought you were going to save you Enterprise Boilerplate. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of you Enterprise Boilerplate? No, I'm not. <laughs> no, my, really, I, I kind of have like one big pick today, which is, VR. Because Divi and I talk way too much, she is probably totally sick of me talking about VR and how I look at the world differently. Now that like I've experienced like like VR with like full like hand tracking and everything, it's 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 amazing. Like I've I've used VR before. I've used some of the earlier like Oculus development kits. And you know, just with the headset and you know, I play around with it. It, you know, the quality of the image was pretty bad. It was like blurry and streaky and the latency wasn't great. And, you know, I'd play with a controller and then after about 10 minutes, I'd start getting sick and then I'd take it off and be like, wow, that seems interesting. I will not do that again, but, uh, that was, yeah, that was interesting. (laughs) And, uh, John Leiter, who, um, uh, works on the the Beautify JS project actually. Recently, lent me his VR kit, and I bought a game called Beat Saber. And actually, I I had Beat Saber in mind, like when he lent me his VR kit, which is an Oculus, by the way. For everybody who's like really into the Vive, I apologize. People seem to get really mad when I like mention that the Oculus exists when uh, they're Vive fans. I, I really do not know like a lot about like the Oculus versus Vive thing. So like, you're, you're probably right. Like you, uh, Vive is probably better or something, but whatever, I, I use the Oculus and it's working well for me. And Beat Saber is a rhythm game that gives you two lightsabers and you are like essentially like slicing little boxes in like specific directions to music as it's coming at you. And I've played Fruit games like this Ninja-esque. Yeah, I mean, sort of like a mix between like Fruit Ninja and Audio Surf. If you ever played that, that's one of those like early like visualization games. Oh, uh, I saw like, that there was a viral video of a guy playing that. Like I Beat Saber? Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was. He had like the whole Oculus Rift on and he had like, yeah. he was swinging around. And- so it probably looks like, it seems like, it seems like, okay, so you're like slicing some boxes with like little like pieces of light. Like, that doesn't seem that interesting, Chris. You haven't tried it. You haven't tried it. Shut your filthy mouth. It's beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's such an amazing experience. And, and I've gotten such a good workout. Um, I'm not losing any weight because I've made sure to double my snacking uh, in order to maintain my weight. I'm just kidding. I could probably, I could probably lose a, a few pounds, but uh, I, I, I have actually just taken advantage of it to, to snack more because I like snacking. And yeah, I'm like doing a lot of my exercise through Beat Saber and like playing songs on Expert. If you, in case you like play with it a little bit, once you play songs on Expert, it's like a completely different experience. It's like you are the music. I, I don't know how to explain it. It's like you are the music and a Jedi at the same time. And it's just amazing. And I, I can't speak more highly about it. And this is a, a non-VR game now called Slay the Spire, which I've also been playing sometimes. And it actually is good to play in like little spurts of like five or 10 or 15 minutes or something like that. And you can, you know, boot it up, play a little real quick, jump out. So that can be really nice. You know, so if I had had some free time, like right before this podcast, 
you know, like between tasks, that's something or, I might've done. Or while you're doing your end to end tests. Or while, while I'm billing for the, the time that it takes for my end to end test to run. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Let's, let's round that up to half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so that's it for my picks. Okie doke. All right. And I think that's it for the show. So thank oh. you, everyone. Oh, Eric hasn't gone yet. Oh, he hasn't? Oh, I thought I went after everybody else. Okay, never mind. Go go ahead, Eric. Sorry about that. Oh, no, I'll keep it quick. I did a plus one for rhythm games in general. You know, I'm a big rhythm game fan. I used to play it. those crazy games back in the day. I want to try that. Were you uh, you're into DDR? I, I did play some DDR. <laughs> you brought on the you were part of the revolution uh, yes back in high school I, I i was for sure and plus one for todoist too that's pretty fun uh, i was just gonna say um there was this funny tweet that was going around by andrew clark the other day i'm just gonna read it so when reviewing a pr it's essential that you leave a comment any comment even the pr looks great and you have no substantial feedback find something trivial to nitpick or question this communicates intelligence and mastery and is widely appreciated by your colleagues. And then we says one more automated code quality tools like Prettier Code and Git ESLint can sometimes make this difficult, but there's a little creativity. No PR, PR is immune to your scrutiny. So I just thought that was a funny <laughs> tweet about about um, PRs. Yeah, he wasn't serious, right? Yeah. That doesn't sound. Yeah, that doesn't sound like. But, uh... <laughs> Um, yeah, so that, that's what I have. And also, you know, check out my new course on Vue.js and Nux.js at school.programwitheric.com. Oh, is it school.program? What was that again? School.programwitheric.com. And that's with a C. School.programwitheric.com. Cool. Yep. All right. Then I will wrap the show. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on this episode of Views on View. And until next week, Divya, would you like to take us out? Enjoy the view. Yeah! <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more. <laughs>